Scripture lesson tonight comes from Judges chapter 21. Judges chapter 21, hear now the word of our God. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly, for when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebonah. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when the, their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty." And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. If you're not a little puzzled by that text, I'd be worried about you. What are you supposed to think about that? I want to, I want to sort of go through our text tonight 
kind of the way the author of Judges does because it's actually helpful to think about it step by step. I mean, we've heard over the last couple of weeks about how Benjamin had grievously sinned. I mean, first of all, at Gibeah of Benjamin, Gibeah became like Sodom. The story of, Gen- of Judges 19 repeats the story of Genesis 19. Gibeah has become Sodom. They they, they, they tried to, to, to rape the Levite, and then instead the Levite says, here, take my concubine. <laughs> uh, and so they rape and kill the concubine. And then, and then, and then the, the Levite, no hero in the, in the, in our, in the passage, uh, cuts her up in 12 pieces and sends her around to all the tribes saying, hey, we got a problem here. Let's, do, let's bring vengeance against, against Gibeah. And all Israel gathers together. And, you know, for the first time in the book of Judges, Israel gathers together. I mean, it's, it's worth noting that all through the book of Judges, the judges have a terrible time trying to get Israel to unite. There's always somebody who's, who's complaining about what's going on. There's always somebody who's not involved. And this time, all Israel comes together and says, we've got to do something about this. Nothing like this has ever happened before in Israel. Because they all see the story. They're like, oh my goodness, this is... Not- Gibeah has become like Sodom. We don't, we can't let this continue. If this continues, if this spreads, God's going to bring judgment on all Israel. We must deal with this. So, I mean, there's this excellent sort of sense of, hey, uh, this is not okay, and we need to bring judgment against oppressors, abusers. So there's there's this there's this good impulse, which then runs, you know, runs to the point of saying, well. Since all Benjamin defends Gibeah, therefore all Benjamin needs to be destroyed. And so that's what happens in chapter 20. In chapter 20, all Benjamin gets destroyed except for these 600 guys hiding out at the Rock of Rimon. And these 600 are they're basically, they're, they're the last remnant of Benjamin and they're all men. Which means that Benjamin's not going to last much longer. Because when they die, Benjamin dies with them. And so... Then we get to this puzzling story where Israel now seems to be perplexed and bothered by this result that they themselves accomplished. I mean, why is it that one tribe in in Israel has now been obliterated? Uh, Because you guys killed them. (laughs) Um, But now they have a problem because they're like, okay, but now this now we have a worse problem because we can't we can't have one tribe in Israel be obliterated. But we already took an oath saying, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So, and since Gibeah of Benjamin was worse than Sodom, this oath is appropriate. If Israel is not supposed to intermarry with the Canaanites, intermarrying with worse than Canaanites would be a problem. But the second oath they swore was that whoever did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah shall surely be put to death. Now, I'll just, I'll give you a bit of for, for, forecasting here, foreshadowing what's going, what's, what's sort of, this whole episode is pointing forward to what happens in our Lord Jesus. Because if a city in Israel can become Sodom, then could not the Gentiles become Israel? In one sense, you can say that, you know, the story of Ruth prepares us for this. Ruth was a Moabite. Who are the Moabites? The Moabites are the descendants of Lot by his daughter, and Lot was the one who survived the destruction of Sodom. Lot's wife 
was herself apparently from Sodom. So that means that her daughter, their daughters would be the last remnant of Sodom. And so the Moabites and the Ammonites are actually descendants of Sodom. And so what's happening in the story of Ruth? God is bringing Sodom back into his people. In the story of Ruth, the Moabite, God is putting this cursed people who had the judgment of God against them into the line of David, which of course winds up being the line of our Lord Jesus. Now, our story tonight is an odd twist on the same theme. I say an odd twist because everything in the book of Judges is an odd twist. Because having slaughtered almost all of the men of Benjamin and having killed every woman and child in Benjamin, Israel weeps. It wasn't like somebody else did this. You guys did this. The people of Israel come to Bethel where the ark of the Lord was and they wept as they had after the first two battles against Gibeah had failed. Israel began their successful campaign against Benjamin with fasting and weeping as they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, worshiping the Lord and calling upon his name. Now Israel ends their holy war against Benjamin in the same manner. They come with weeping and burnt offerings and peace offerings, asking, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Yeah, it seems a little odd. Yesterday they were the ones hacking and burning, killing men, women, and children, and today they're the ones crying about it. What's going on? Well, yesterday Israel was doing what the Lord commanded should be done to the Canaanites. You see, God's what God is when God sent Israel to destroy the Canaanites, he wasn't saying that the the Canaanites were the worst people in the world. What he was saying is I'm going to give you a picture of the final judgment. It's what happened at Sodom. It wasn't that Sodom was the worst city ever. It was that God said, I'm going to make Sodom an example of my wrath. I want all the world to see this is what sin deserves. And so he sends fire from heaven to destroy Sodom as a picture of this is what sin deserves. As a warning to the rest of humanity, pay attention. Well, the rest of humanity didn't really pay attention. And so when God sends Israel to destroy the Canaanites, this, this, well, I'll use the word genocide that God commands Israel to commit. I mean, let's call it what it is. He calls Israel to commit genocide against the Canaanites. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Israel is called to be, you might say, well, to put it simply, the son of God coming in judgment against humanity. And that's what Israel is called to do in, the, in their conquest of, of Canaan, wiping out those whom God has condemned for their sin. This is where it's not, it's not as though the Canaanites are sort of innocent. Of, no, actually, they're, they're sinners like the rest of us. And God is saying, this is what sin deserves. If I treated all of humanity the way humanity deserved, I would destroy humanity. Remember the flood? <laughs> that's what God did in the flood. The, the flood is, is, is sort of the archetypal pattern of this where God himself did it, then Sodom as well, where God himself does it, and then when Israel is sent to Canaan, Israel is sent as the agent of judgment. Now, Benjamin has become as bad as the Canaanites. Benjamin has become as bad as Sodom. Benjamin must be 
destroyed. This is the, the sort of the total war image that God commanded against the Canaanites. And that's what God commands against their brothers, Benjamin. But notice, they take no delight in the death of the wicked. They, they execute this judgment because that's what sin deserves. But now they mourn the death of their brother, Benjamin. And once again, in sorrow at the slaughter of their brethren, they come before the Lord in worship, bringing burnt offerings and peace offerings. They come for the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of fellowship with God. And they begin to search for a way to prevent the complete annihilation of Benjamin. Now, we we might ask the other question. If Benjamin has become worse than the Canaanites, if Benjamin has become like Sodom, then why should Benjamin be saved? Why not find the last 600 men and slaughter them? If they're supposed to kill them all, why not finish the job? Well, this is part of God's purpose in showing us that, yes, the the Canaanites were a picture of the final judgment, although even the Canaanites, what happens to them? Who is Rahab? She was a Canaanite. But Rahab believed in the Lord and she was spared and she was brought into the line that actually... Rahab becomes the mother of Boaz, the one who marries Ruth. The Canaanites wound up in the line of David and in the line of our Lord Jesus, just like the Sodomites. Each of these nations doomed to destruction winds up getting joined into the line of our Lord Jesus. But God's purpose in all of these stories is to show that there is grace in the end. While Benjamin was acting like the Canaanites... In the end, they are not Canaanites. They are brethren. And so Israel mourns the cutting off of Benjamin and seeks for the grace of God to bring mercy to their brothers. And the first thing they do is ask, well, did anyone fail to come out to the battle? Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For, as verse 5 says, they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. Now, again, remember throughout the book of Judges, never does any judge convince all Israel to come out and fight against their enemies. Only the, the wickedness of Gibeah in Benjamin convinced Israel to act. Only the horrific death of the concubine from Bethlehem in Judah prompts Israel to unite. Well, now we find out why... The response, why all, all Israel turned out, Israel had taken an oath, saying a, a great oath, saying that those who did not come would be put to death. If you don't show up, we're coming after you next. The idea here is that all Israel is implicated in the sin of Benjamin. Benjamin has, through becoming like Sodom, Benjamin has become the, the sort of the wickedness in the camp that will result in the destruction of all Israel if they don't deal with it. Remember the sin of Achan back in the book of Joshua where Achan took the devoted things at Jericho and now now, any town in all Israel that does not fight against Benjamin will now be considered a part of Benjamin and given the judgment that they received. And the town that they find that didn't show up was Jabesh Gilead. I know, all of you are like, oh, of course, Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead. Well, 
there's, there's two other references to Jabesh Gilead in the Bible. One is in 1 Samuel 11, where Nahash, the Ammonite, threatens to, to gouge out the right eyes of the men of Jabesh Gilead and make them his servants. When King Saul hears of this, this is the first act King Saul ever does as King Saul. When King Saul hears of this, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, like it had rushed upon Samson in, our, in the book of Judges, and he cut a yoke of oxen into 12 pieces and sent them throughout all Israel, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. So Saul uses the same picture of the 12 pieces of an, of an animal. At least, at least he uses an animal and not the concubine. Um, but so Saul then musters all the men of Israel and they rescue Jabesh Gilead. Now, um, why is this important to po point out that Jabesh Gilead shows up in 1 Samuel 11? Well, I've suggested that this is, Judges 19 to 21 is a tale of two cities. Gibeah in Benjamin, Bethlehem in Judah. King Saul was from Gibeah. King David was from Bethlehem. So, who's from Jabesh Gilead? Well, if, if Saul is from Gibeah in Benjamin, where is Saul's mother from? I mean, all the Benjamite women are dead. I say his mother, great-grandmother, William. Saul's great-great-great-great-grandmother was from Jabesh Gilead. This is because I mean, he, if, if, he's born, if he's born in Gibeah, after, remember all the Gibeahites were destroyed, Benjamin now, re, when, they re, when they resettle, it'll be those 600 Benjamites with the 400 women from Jabesh Gilead as their wives, plus a few gals from Shiloh. Um, so Saul's great-grandmother is from Jabesh Gilead. So when you think about it, I mean, this, this actually, partly, it paints Saul in some, in some unfortunate colors. Saul is from Gibeah, that town of rapists and murderers, and his foremother is from Jabesh Gilead, that town of cowards. Both cities were devoted to destruction, with men, women, and children slaughtered for their failure to obey God. Is it any wonder that Saul turned out so badly? At least that's one way you could take it. So the congregation of Israel, gathered for worship before the Lord, sends out 12,000 men to destroy Jabesh Gilead and you know, kill all the men and the married women and, and then bring back the young women, the virgins, as wives for Benjamin. I, that, that probably sounds like a little over the top. All through the book of Judges, we've encountered this problem cities that have not gone up to battle with their brothers. So there's a in one sense, you could say, okay, if Israel is going to be the people of God, they need to be of one mind and heart. So what Israel is saying here is, cowards who abandon their brethren and refuse to participate in doing justice do not belong in Israel. Now, on the other hand, if you're feeling like, it still feels a bit over the top, hang on, we'll get there. But the, the 12,000 do their task and they bring back 400 virgins to Shiloh, the place of worship, and they offer them to the men of Benjamin proclaiming peace. Now, okay, this is bizarre to us. 
We find it very odd that Israel would kill all the men and married women and take the 400 virgins. But the picture that's being painted here is that of Jabesh Gilead is cut off in place of Benjamin. They refuse to bring justice to Benjamin, so they are counted guilty in Benjamin's place. And their daughters are given to Benjamin in order to give both communities a new chance. Because it is through the 600 men of Benjamin and the 400 women of Jabesh Gilead that both cities will be given a chance to rebuild. The community is judged together. If your community does something wrong, the community as a whole is responsible for it. I mean, in our own country, abortion would be one example. Racial slavery would be another. Now, when I say that your community is judged together, I'm not talking about the final judgment and your eternal destiny. We're talking about how God judges nations and cities in the middle of history. When, when, a, when a nation is guilty, it's the whole nation that will suffer for the consequences. It really doesn't matter whether you were for it or against it. If you're part of the nation, then you're responsible and the judgment that God brings upon your nation because of what your nation did will fall upon those who agreed with it and those who disagreed with it alike. I mean, the only, I mean, if you think about it, the only way to get for ben, if you think about the Benjaminites, when, Benjamin see, when, when the Benjaminites see the Israelite army coming, the only way out is if they hightail it out of Benjamin and sort of like say, nope, we, we're not. So, and, and it's entirely possible there were people who did that. It wouldn't surprise me in the least if there were a lot of people who did that. But they're also no longer counted as Benjamin anymore. They have, not, they have distanced themselves from that, position, that place. But the, three, the messengers are sent in verse 13 to the Tzorak of Ramon to proclaim peace, shalom, to the 600 men in hiding. And, and verse 15 tells us that the, the, the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. The Lord has brought this to pass, although you could say Israel has been the instrument of doing that. But it's important to see how just as Benjamin is redeemed, so also is Jabesh Gilead. Because I mentioned there are two other places where Jabesh Gilead is mentioned. The other place is in 1 Samuel 31, where the men of Jabesh Gilead rescue the body of King Saul from the Philistines after Saul's death, and they bury Saul in Jabesh. The men of Jabesh Gilead recover their honor. They had been judged with Benjamin for their failure to show up, but their rescue of Saul's body in 1 Samuel 31 is their, no longer are they cowards. They are, they are marching into the heart of the Philistine stronghold to rescue the dead body of their kinsman, King Saul. And I, I can't help but point out that on the one hand, sure, King Saul winds up failing. He winds up falling far short of what he should have been. But even the house of Saul is not abandoned to dishonor. You know that's the point of the book of Esther? Because... Esther's cousin, Mordecai, is descended from Kish, Saul's father. Mordecai 
is the is the descendant of Saul and he winds up bringing judgment against Haman the Agagite and Agag was the king that Saul had failed to kill the, as, as God had commanded him to and so there's a way in which Mordecai in the book of Esther winds up restoring the honor of the house of Saul even as the men of Jabesh Gilead restore their honor it's just fascinating to me to watch all of the how in all of these stories these story arcs are ones that it's not even just just one book of the Bible shows them it's that there's all these different pieces all through the scriptures and so until you get to there was a there was another guy named Saul who was a Benjaminite you know him you may know him better as Paul the Apostle but you think about how low Benjamin had come, how far they had fallen, that they were nearly wiped out from being a tribe in Israel. What does our Lord Jesus do? He singles out this Benjaminite. This Benjaminite with the same name as that disgraced king who failed. And he calls him and he says, Saul, Saul, I'm calling you to go to the Gentiles. I'm calling you to succeed where your ancestor failed. I'm calling you to become one who will bring the message of the, of the good news of Jesus to all the earth, thereby, in a sense, bringing judgment on all the nations, but the not the judgment of cursing and death, the judgment of justification and life through the preaching of the good news of Jesus. These stories, all through the scriptures, keep getting woven together. So even though, sure, there are ways in which this story here in chapter 21 is just weird. But when you see some of these weirdnesses, you start saying, wow, God's... And you see all the messed upness, you see all the failures, you see all the... I don't think that's quite right. Right. It's not quite right. It's not, I mean, that's, but that's where God's going with the story. Well, the problem, though, is that is that the 400 women of, of Jabesh Gilead is not quite enough. There's still 200 more Benjaminites who lack wives. And so they, they, they try to find a way of finding wives for them. They've sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin, and they're not willing to come under that curse. So these Benjaminites must either remain single or marry Canaanites. And those are options that do not appear to occur to, to Israel. Uh, but then someone comes up with a bright idea. Hey, how can we keep our oath and yet provide wives for Benjamin? Well, there's the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, uh, the, probably the Feast of Booths, which is that's the feast that in, all, in, in the scriptures, when, when you hear of a feast that's simply called the Feast of the Lord, that's probably the Feast of Booths. And apparently the, the daughters of Shiloh would gather to dance at this feast, and Benjamin is told to go lie in wait and kidnap the girls. I, just, just as a brief aside, I, I, when I was getting to know my my now wife, I, I thought I'd, I'd I thought I'd, I'd have some fun about we were we were told we were going to exchange stories and and I was like you know as I was trying as I've been trying to find a wife uh, I tried I was like hey I should go to the Bible to learn how to find a wife and so you know I started with Genesis and you know God puts Adam to sleep and so I was like okay I'll try sleeping a lot and see if God gives me a wife and okay that didn't work and and, and, and I kept going. And so, I, and then, and then I, I included a reference to Judges 21. I tried kidnapping a girl while she was dancing, but her father didn't like that very much. Uh, so, anyway, I'm just, just, just telling you, uh, 
There are lots of stories about how to find a wife in the Bible. Most of them, maybe not quite sort of go and do that likewise. Um, so, uh, so uh, it's perhaps not surprising that a story that began with a man offering his own daughter to rapists should end with all Israel offering other men's daughters in marriage to the defenders of rapists without their consent. This, so if, you're, if at this point, especially, if, if you're, as you're going through this story, you're sort of like, this doesn't... Uh. But here's how Israel's thinking of it. We can keep our oath. No father willingly gave his daughter to Benjamin as a wife, and yet Benjamin is supplied with sufficient women. Now you're, you're also wondering... And how come nobody ever is sort of like, okay, guys, you know, make sure your daughters don't go out to dance tonight because they'll get kidnapped if they do. I mean, you're sort of like, what's going on here? Benjamin returns to his inheritance. Everyone else returns to their inheritance. Everyone will return to how it was. Oh, wait. The reader in ancient Israel, as well as today, would come away from Judges 21 with some horror. The restoration of Benjamin was necessary, but this is not a picture of a properly operating Israel. The author of the book of Judges is not saying, and they did everything just right. Good job, guys. Because how does he conclude the story? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Oh, that's how the story ends? This is not a good ending to the story. This is not a, ah, and then everything was fine. No. In fact, the author of the book of Judges leaves you with a, oh, that doesn't feel good. And he does that on purpose. Because he knows... I'm not sure that the author of the book of Judges necessarily had a really good idea of what was the right way to handle this? It was a mess. I I, I like how Dale Ralph Davis puts it. There is a, a certain rightness and a certain wrongness about what Israel does. They justifiably requite Jabesh Gilead with unjustifiable severity. They stand consistently upon their wife oath, but trample happily upon the rights of the Shiloh girls and their families. It is a a mix of consistency and confusion. It is all correct and yet very mistaken. Everyone is walking by sight, not by faith. The message for Israel is clear. You were walking by sight when you picked Saul as king. He may have looked good by human standards, But you did not see by faith what should have been clear from the beginning. You need a king from Bethlehem in Judah, not from Gibeah and Benjamin, especially not one with a mother from Jabesh Gilead. We need a king from Bethlehem. We need a king who will do not just what is right in his own eyes, but what is right in God's eyes. And we need, we need a king, because of course then you go through the whole book of kings and you're like, ah, we have kings from Bethlehem. Yay, we're there, right? The problem is the kings from Bethlehem wind up being no better than the judges before them. 
So we need a king who will not only do what is right in God's eyes, but a king who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes. A king who can change our hearts. Ah, a king who will open the eyes of our hearts to enable us to see by faith. The cycle of rebellion and apostasy must be broken. Because Israel is doing what is right in their own eyes, they do not see by faith. You come to the end of the book of Judges and you find yourself saying, wow, how did Israel survive? How could there still be an Israel? And it can only be because the Lord himself wished to dwell in the midst of his people in spite of their sin. It can only be because the Lord's grace is far more tenacious than our depravity. He insists on holding us fast, even in our sinfulness and stupidity. And he's not finished yet. Because while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we were hostile, while we were doing what is right in our own eyes, Christ came and loved you. You see, how are we different from Israel? In ourselves? We're not. Anybody here specialize in doing what's right in their own eyes? (sighs) But that's where Christ died for us. He offered himself in our place in order that he might bring us to God. Because what's God doing in this story? Why? I've I've often said the book of Judges is all about Christmas. The book of Judges is all about Christmas because we need a king from Bethlehem. We need a king who will be born in our own flesh, join himself to our humanity, who will then be able to bring us to God that we might not be left to our own devices, left to doing what's right in our own eyes, but doing what is right in his eyes. Because he joins us to himself by his spirit, by faith, that we might be near to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, have mercy on us. Because we, we so often come up with our bright ideas and we can, oh, we know how to fix this. Lord, we're like our fathers. We, our bright ideas fall short and we, we need your grace We need your mercy because left to ourselves, we continue to turn away and fall short of your kingdom, your glory. Have mercy on us. Draw us near to yourself as you have promised. Renew us by the grace of your Son, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us and shine the light of your countenance upon us that we might know your peace, that the peace of Christ might rule in our hearts as we have been called in one body, that we might be more and more joined to the life of your Son, made new, renewed daily in the image of our Creator. Lord, have mercy upon us and help us in 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 our homes, in in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, that we might show forth the love of Christ, that we might walk humbly before you, that we might show forth your mighty grace and power. Lord, help. Because when we see 
what's happening around us. We see a world that is doing what is right in their own eyes. And help us to not be like that, but that we might be content to do what is right in your eyes. That we might be content to hear Jesus and to walk humbly before your majesty. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Have, have mercy upon those who are suffering and afflicted. Have mercy upon those who are weak. Have mercy upon those who are enduring trials and tribulations, who are dealing with stress and anxiety and, and, and physical ailments and, and disease and injury. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy upon those who are near to death and grant them grace to hold fast to Jesus. Grant them mercy to keep their eyes fixed upon him who loved them because we do not know the hour of our death. And so help us always, Lord, to live in such a way that we might never be afraid to die because we know that whether in life or in death, we belong to you in body and in soul, that in all things we are yours. Have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.